Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Jacob is unable to be with us today, but that is okay. You get the wonderful Sarah and myself to supplement as best we can. Today, I get to bring you something amazing and popping culture. I'm very excited. We talk about one of the shows that I have been absolutely obsessed with during this pandemic we're in. Then in the academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, Feeling Stuck, exploring the development of felt constraint in romantic relationships. And then in good or bad advice, we are going to take a, a trip back in history. We're going to discuss a couple therapy episode from a show I may or may not have recently been watching, Heart of Dixie. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I don't really want to fully admit to that because it's a touch embarrassing, but whatever. We're going it's for it. It's too late. It's out there. <laughs> <laughs> if you have advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us at attachedpodcast, or you can go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message from there. Also, we're now on YouTube, so please like and subscribe to YouTube in addition to this podcast, wherever you happen to be listening to it right now. Remember also, rate and review the podcast because, you know, we want to know what you think, if you like it. Anyway, before we get to all of the wonderful things in this episode, Sarah, how's it going? How's your week been? <laughs> what have your dreams been like? My dreams? <laughs> I've been sleeping really, really well. I think I've been busy surviving a pandemic. Oh just gosh. trying to. I've been eating different kinds of cake this week. Oh. Yeah, I don't even really like cake. Oh. Um, but it's, you know, a coping skill I've picked up in the last week and a half. I've tried carrot cake. Okay. Carrot cake is really up there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not typically, but apparently uh, COVID-19 brings a new flavor to my flavors. <laughs> a new Cheese flavor to my flavors. I love that. <laughs> Cheesecake. I've tried cheesecake. Yeah. yeah. My dad shipped some half moon cookies, which are like a really, in, like really important specialty love in Syracuse, New York. And so I've been eating those also. So food is a coping skill. A hundred percent it is. I think we've done some research on that, in <laughs> yeah. fact, about how <laughs> food is a coping skill. Um, but we don't need to talk about that right now. I also don't really necessarily love cake. I really mm. prefer pies. Absolutely. Um, in fact, at my child's, they have this fall festival every year. Obviously, they're at their school. Obviously, they're not doing it this year. But there's a cakewalk, and I sign up every year to bake cakes for the cakewalk, and I never make a cake. I always make yeah. multiple pies because pie sure. are the superior pastry. They're so absolutely better. yes. So next, week you, <laughs> next week pies. Next week pies. Technically, I've heard that cheesecake is actually a pie. Fantastic! So, I'm yeah. checking all the boxes. <laughs> yeah. Look at you. So this week, one of my uh, dear friends sent me a text and it said, after one year, I finally finished episode three. So all the, all the text said, and I thought, at first I thought like, oh, maybe she like mistexted me. Like she meant to send this to someone else. It was part of a conversation. And so, but I just went with it. And I was like, oh, how exciting. Episode three of what? And it took her a while to respond, like a solid 30 minutes. And then she responded, 
season one. I was like, what? Am I missing something? Like, what's happening? I'm so confused. And I'm like, um, of what though? Of like, what show? She's like, sure. of your podcast. And I was like, Aww. <laughs> it was so sweet, but it was totally over my right. head. But she said she loved it. I'm like, well, thank you very much. It was a, a wonderful text, but I was feeling like I had stroked out for a second there. And I'm like, what am I missing? I don't understand what is happening. And we finally got it together. Communication is key and just mm-hmm. stuck at it until we finally yes. got that communication down. But that was lovely of her to share with me, even though I didn't quite get it at first. But well, and she's got so many more episodes <laughs> to look forward to and Lucky years her. in which to accomplish them. <laughs> so. Years, years. So um, she's good to go. She yep. will be able to jump on it for, for quite some time. So, First up, poppin' culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. So for this first segment, we'd like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. This week, I, Patricia Roberts, and get to talk about a scripted television show that I have actually been obsessed with the entire pandemic. It is called Normal People. I don't know how many people have seen it out there. It is on Mm. Hulu. I am obsessed with it to the point where watching it yet again, and my husband said, is that the third time? Not wanting to say what the actual number was, I just said, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. The third, uh uh-huh. That's that's the number. Yep. So this show, from like a relationship science perspective, is fantastic. It has amazing themes that are so important, like men's mental health, romantic relationship transitions from late adolescent to adulthood. There's a famous sex therapist named David Snarch, and he talks about the sexual crucible and how two people who who are in a romantic relationship, (laughs) sex is the window to their relationship quality. And also the power of of verbal and non-verbal communication are sprinkled throughout this entire show. So that's from the relationship science standpoint. But just purely from an entertainment standpoint, it is based on a a novel that is fantastic, but it's also so well written, so well acted, so well put together. It is well, well worth the, the watch. But despite all of those amazing themes, today I wanted to highlight a yet another wonderful theme in normal people. It's the healing power of healthy, supportive relationships. So so often in television shows, we see how kind of romantic relationships or relationships can kind of break us down or make us feel bad about ourselves. We don't often see how a relationship or a port of relationship can really help us come out of, of hard times. So a little bit of background about this show. Uh, the two main characters are Connell and Daisy. It's set in Ireland and it follows these two individuals from Uh, what I think is the equivalent of like the senior year of high school through Mm. college and they're friends, um, but often, but occasionally become romantic partners, but it just follows their, the trajectory of their relationship through, through that time. So Connell throughout that time battles with a lot of it, of of anxiety and Daisy comes from uh, a, a verbally and sometimes physically abusive family home Mm. and deals with that and how it impacts her self-worth and how she views herself as contributing to relationships, but also just in general, her 
her self-worth as they grow in both into adulthood and in their relationship. You see them kind of support each other through these dark times. Connell Mm -hmm. has his anxiety kind of grows and manifests more strongly to um, throughout Mm -hmm. college. And you see him finally seeking therapy because of friends recommending him him do that. And you see how Daisy supports him through that. Even though they are living apart, they're very supportive of each other through that. Mm -hmm. And and Daisy is continues to deal with her abusive family. And Connell kind of gives her helps give her strength to stand up for herself and step away and and recognize mm-hmm. her self-worth is not what her family believes her her self-worth wow. is. It's very, very powerful. And mm-hmm. at the end, not to give anything away, if you don't want any spoilers, uh, fast forward about five minutes, they start to recognize how important their relationship is to each other and how they've helped each other be who they they are. It's a very powerful moment. In fact, I have a a clip. And in this clip, we see uh, Connell has decided to take an internship and is is moving away from Ireland. And he asks Daisy to move with him. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. No. You'd be somewhere else in party. <laughs> be a different person. Not me too. But we have done so much good for one another. You know I love you. So it's very, very sweet and moving and the acting is absolutely phenomenal, but it's amazing how they're able to recognize, and of course it's scripted, but they're able to recognize how much good they've done for each other, sit in the moment and appreciate it. And so often we have people in our lives that, you know, we know that they have influenced us. They have changed our lives for the better, but I don't think we maybe do what Connell and Daisy do and, you know, like tell each other, like, you're Mm. so important to me. You've changed my life for the, for the Mm. better. And even Mm. though we might be parting or we might not be in each other's lives similarly. I just want you to know that you mean a lot to me, right? You've, you've changed my life for the better. So I love that moment. I love how they're able to be open with each other and, and just the power of how over the past years, they've been able to do so much good for one another. Love the show. You gotta watch it. You've volunteered. (laughs) to watch that scene three plus times. I just struggled to watch it once. Oh, oh my goodness. It must be. Yeah. The rest of it, very worth it. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, that scene in particular is just a wonderful culmination of all of the things that they've, they've been through yeah. together. So while it is a tearful scene, you also see Connell 
smile a lot mm-hmm. through so the, much growth so much growth through the through the entire thing actually throughout that whole entire thing daisy is actually the actress sorry it's connell and marianne are the actors and daisy and paul are the actors so i messed that up So now we're going to move to the academic deep dive segment and talk about an article titled Feeling Stuck, Exploring the Development of Felt Constraint, which sounds the opposite of what we just talked about in romantic relationships, written by Tyler Jameson at the University of New Hampshire and Dr. Jonathan Beckman at West Virginia University. Just published in the Journal of Family Relations, (laughs) these authors explored how rather than romantic partners staying committed to each other because they wanted to stay in a relationship, they stay together due to constraints. In other words, rather than being a purposeful choice because people feel good about their partner and believe they're both in it for the long haul, they stay because of barriers of getting out of the relationship, such as pressures from family and friends, how hard it might be to separate, feeling like they've already invested so much into the relationship, sharing a house, having a pet together, you know, because those pets, they just, I mean, they'll just be devastated. Or feeling like they owe it to their partner to stick it out. I would also say having a pet or a child together. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. That's, yes, that's discussed. Um, I actually just saw this funny TikTok, surprise, surprise, of a pediatrician saying, you know how people call pets fur babies, but every time I refer to my patients as skin dogs, people get mad at me. He was obviously being (laughs) hilarious, but anyway, made me laugh. Anyway, the authors describe prior research that focuses especially on something called felt constraint, which is the feeling of being stuck in a relationship because of external pressures how they evaluate barriers that keep them from leaving the relationships. And what we know is when people describe how their level of commitment makes them feel, partners who are committed to the relationship because they've trapped or stifled rather than feeling like they want to stay together are more stressed, more lonely, and less satisfied with their relationship. So Sarah, how did these researchers study romantic partners' experience of felt constraint and what did they find? Yeah. So I think one thing that they point out that's important is that having barriers to leaving a relationship isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can help keep relationships together, obviously, to have yeah. to have kids or a fur baby. A Probably skin a, dog a, as a skin puppy, <laughs> as some people refer to them. Right. It becomes a problem though when somebody in the relationship thinks that they might not want to be in it or they're unhappy. And so felt constraint is when it's especially bad to have barriers. And actually what happens is even though these relationships get stretched out, as we will talk about, they are more likely to end when people start to feel stuck. So they focus on uh, in this paper on young adults in stuck relationships, which they define as these partnerships in which at least one person experienced felt constraint. So they did relationship history interviews of 35 participants between the ages of 25 and 40, which I really appreciate that that is their definition of young adults. Thank you very much. Yeah. Average age was 32. So I'm feeling pretty good. They were 86% white, 64% female, 64% heterosexual. And these participants had had at least one romantic relationship. So they first made a genogram of the immediate family. So they, they drew a picture of this participant and everyone that was in their immediate family to be able to get a visual of who, who they were connected to. 
to. And then they co-created a romantic history timeline, a visual mm. timeline, beginning with the first time that they were romantically involved with somebody. So they, they wrote down the names and the ages and how long these relationships lasted. So they had a picture. Oh, so yeah. not just one relationship. It was all of their relationships. All of them. The, wow. Their relationship Clever. history. Yes, their timeline. So then they worked through it. So their their interviews were organized by these these graphic representations of their relationships, and they moved through it by starting starting with asking, like, "Tell me about what you remember about so and so," and then ask some follow up questions just to kind of explore and understand their relationships with each of these people. And so on average, the length of any relationship that ended up being included was a little over five years. And what they found was this, they found the stuck code that emerged when they did the the qualitative data analysis. Mm. They looked through all of these interviews, the text of all of these interviews, and looked to see if they found any common themes, right? That's kind of how we describe coding, qualitative coding. And this stuck code emerged really organically in interviews with 14 participants reflecting 21 relationships total. And they found that it was really common to enter into these stuck relationships in late teens and early 20s. But they defined stuck as a relationship, according to the data that they had, that included at least one of three different elements. So a stuck relationship Mm -hmm. was represented by participants who either expressed regret about how long they stayed, like they, they felt like they had stayed too long in oh, it, okay. they, felt they, tra- they felt trapped, they stayed in it because they didn't have other options, and they kind of slid from one level to the next. So they moved from kind of one night stand to casually dating, to seriously dating, to living together, they kind of pretty quickly and then stayed for too long. Then the second characteristic was that they may have taken longer to break up than they really wanted Mm. to. It was like this really protracted period of dissolving the relationship. And then third, they had some ambivalence about the future they might have with their current partners, while at the same time, they described it as accruing barriers that made Mm. it harder to leave. So while they were feeling like they weren't sure they had a future, they were racking up all of these reasons why it would be harder to get out, like sharing an address, sharing, uh, spending time with one another's family, uh, sharing a bank account, et cetera, et cetera. So the, that's how they uh, described the stuck relationships. But what was especially interesting, I think, was the process of becoming stuck mm. that they felt like they discovered through these interviews. So these relationships began with early positive experiences that really built this foundation of personal commitment. So this is this idea that I really want to be in this relationship, which is the opposite of feeling constrained or different than feeling constrained. So this personal commitment, meaning that they were able to say like, it was really exciting first. We had really great chemistry. We got along really great. We connected really well. It was positive to begin with. I wanted to be in this relationship. So it was that the the, the feeling of wanting to be in this relationship, not necessarily just being in a relationship. Right. That's right. So they had within these specific relationships, they had these early positive experiences that meant I really want to, I really want to be with this person. This is good. But then they started to accrue these barriers to breaking up. So they don't want to any longer just kind of be in the relationship because they want to, but they start to be in it because of circumstances that mean they kind of feel like they need to stay in it. Like they, they need some place to live or they are living together. They have children together. They become really involved with their partner's family. So their, their lives kind of get weaved together in ways that 
that make it harder to separate. And as this goes on, they start to sustain this partnership. They stay in the relationship despite starting to feel like they're less and less satisfied. Their satisfaction is going downhill, but they describe this process, these participants about like trying to hold on to positive moments, even though they were fewer and further between, they would try to kind of hold on to those. Like it would be maybe sometimes indicators of it could get better. I just, I just keep kept expecting that it could get better. They would spend time maybe reflecting on all of these early positive experiences mm-hmm. and good times. Like it wasn't always this bad. So they go through this real cognitive process of things aren't, things aren't going well. I don't feel good in this relationship, but Maybe I kind of had low expectations to begin with, and this isn't that much worse than I thought oh. it would be. So kind and of like cog- cognitively talking yourself out of your feelings. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And focusing on what is good rather than all of the bad that's accumulating. So then they describe that participants would start thinking about breaking up, but then sometimes for some of them, unexpected circumstances delayed it, like their partner's mom was diagnosed with cancer or they lost a job or something where, well, I can't really break up with them now. Yeah. Like that would be really me. I'd be a really awful person if I did that now, which really kind of increased their feeling stuck. And then those external contexts just kind of continued to pile on so that they end up being in these relationships for much longer. And it also takes a, a much longer time to get out of it. They also found that participants with challenging kind of difficult family relationships were much more likely to form kind of these early binding Mm. personal commitments and then quickly accrue all these barriers to break up which is i think an interesting kind of multi-level process you're you're hearing there of my own family relationships are not so great so i jump into this romantic relationship and then we slide really fast into very committed but not necessarily because i want to be anymore right interesting then they describe third this process of getting unstuck so okay. how do people kind of get out of it? So again, out of the 21 relationships that they they identified, people said st- 19 were, were dissolved. They were, they'd broken up. It took a long time for these relationships to end. And people really weighed these positives and negatives. And part of what helps them get out of it, which is, is what I think your clip in Pop and Culture is really highlighting, is that they became more aware of alternatives outside the relationship. Yeah, okay. So they got job offers elsewhere, or they went off to college, or they started to mature out of the relationship and see other options that might have been there for them that helps them kind of get unstuck and out of out of this position. So deciding a relationship was unhealthy or unsatisfying was really only the first step. They really had to extract themselves from all of these different constraints that they had built up in the process. What I think was really interesting is that they said that women found it especially difficult to put their own needs above concerns for their partners. They had this real sense of obligation to stay with their partner. Yeah. It's like a gendered socialization of what the role of women are. Once I'm in it, I really can't get out of it because I feel like I owe it to you to stay here, which is a really miserable reason to stay in a relationship. I'm really fascinated where they got those messages from. I mean, I know society, obviously, but like that would be an interesting thing to explore. uh, Yeah. Research. Right. And potentially using that genogram, where did you get, are there other ways you got these messages informed by your immediate family? I think that, I mean, there's a limitation to this project that they're interviewing one person out of these stuck relationships. It would be really interesting to know what their partner's perspective was, whether or not they felt stuck at all, or they, I mean, you could imagine that someone might feel really stuck if their partner was really wanting to be in the relationship and you're like, oh, that's just not how I feel. Well, maybe I'll just keep waiting it out and see if it comes back around. But I think it's a really nice interview example of kind of outlining this process that happens for 
young adults in their 30s. No, especially in their 20s, I said. Sorry, uh, I believe they, they included people who are 40s, so. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, that's so true. Most of these relationships happened when they were younger, but okay. but it's fine. We all, we all fit in the definition. So I think what's really important about this research is it really does a lovely job of capturing people's experiences of what this feels like to be stuck in a romantic mm. relationship and the real consequences that come from sliding into next stages of a relationship. There, this this decision-making that happens in a way that's not very active or intentional. It's not very deliberative. Yeah. They, they just kind of end up with the same address and the same closet and now they're married and then they have kids and they just all of a sudden are like, wow, how did I get here? That was supposed to be a one night stand. And they spend lots of years in these relationships feeling not great about them. So I think there's real consequences of that and how important it might be to be more intentional about the decisions we make about entering into relationships, but also about moving along in next steps and next phases and how we define relationships and how we decide to stay individually and also together as a partnership. Yeah. Because I think that was my that was my other takeaway, the other reflection I was having reading this paper. In therapy, sometimes we talk about getting unstuck. When we're stuck in therapy, we feel like we've come to an impasse with an individual or a couple or family, we start to think about what's a way I can get unstuck in here? How can I help kind of shift gears? And one way we talk about doing that is expanding the system, bringing another person into the conversation. Maybe me as a therapist, I I talk to a colleague or a supervisor and I have to get someone else's perspective to help get me unstuck. Or I bring Mm. other people into the therapy room because there's some information missing or there's a perspective missing or change can't happen here because we're missing a key player. And bringing that person on board can just help to shift perspectives. It can be a really powerful move to get unstuck. Get you out of that cycle of of thought and behavior or whatever that is that you feel stuck and not able to, to move forward. And so what I thought was really notable, I didn't, I didn't see it. I even tried to specifically look for it. So it's possible if it's possible I missed it in here, but I didn't hear or, or find very meaningful examples of where these people who felt stuck ended up asking friends and family, let alone their partner to talk about, Hey, I feel stuck here. Yeah. This is what this experience, it felt like a lot of themes of doing internal individual cognitive work about like, what are the positives of staying? What are the positives of leaving? Why should, oh, now I'm obligated to say, oh, now she has a a family member in the hospital. Now her dad has died. Now, I mean, it was like a lot of this internal cognitive work about, I feel like I don't really want to be here. I feel really stifled. I have other life goals that aren't being met but never kind of expanding the system necessarily, at least in this, at least in how they've reported their data here to get other perspectives, which I think can be a tricky process when you ask friends and family for input on your romantic relationship. I think it's a, it's a careful line to walk. But maybe also that's what contributed to them being stuck is that they never either solicited or listened to advice outside of their own uh, small system. So it could be a contributing factor if everything they're doing is so, so internal, especially if it's not, doesn't sound like they're reflecting off of their partner, much less friends or, or family. It could be a, a reason why um, they got stuck because also it sounds like these individuals, some of them, because there are 21 relationships, but a fewer number of people. So sometimes people get into multiple stuck yes. relationships. Yeah. Yeah. So it could be part of, of a pattern. Of pattern. course, I'm mm-hmm. wildly extrapolating from this 
sure. study, but thinking about if you feel stuck, I like what you're saying, expand your system because perhaps being internal and only thinking about this stuff within your own head is contributing to your feeling stuckness or these feelings of constraint. Well, I also think if you pair those two takeaways, right, if I want to make more intentional decisions about how we're progressing in a relationship, it's also quite valuable to have those conversations out loud with your partner. Right. I think it probably feels risky to say to a partner, like, I'm feeling really stifled. But if you are, if you are, and you're not saying it and you don't get out of, if you don't find a way to change that, chances are you're going to feel lonely. You're going to feel depressed. You're going to feel more and more like that until your relationship ends anyways. I think that's an, that's another piece I was reflecting on as I was reading this. Absolutely. Wow. What a, a fantastic paper. And I think we could also think about, though, again, wildly extrapolating here, the, this feeling of, of, of stuckness in, in relationships could not just be in romantic relationships, but also friendships, work relationship, work patterns. I think these similar ideas of feeling stuck and incorporating additional people could perhaps be any moment when we feel stuck in, in, a, in a type of relationship, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a romantic one either. Though obviously this only focuses on romantic relationships. <laughs> <laughs> so not to wildly extrapolate, which is something yeah. we advise people not to do, but yet <laughs> here I am. Science. Science. <laughs> Woohoo! Boo! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, family, friends, allegedly. Sometimes maybe we don't listen to that advice. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows, and we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, and numerous top 10 lists that are all over the web. But a lot of this just isn't actually good for our relationships. This is the part of the show when we use science, mind you, not wildly extrapolated science like I just did, but science (laughs) to decide if the advice is good or bad. So wonderful listeners, if you have heard some advice that you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, tweet at us or any of our social media at attachedpodcast or go directly to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, as always, please like and subscribe to our podcast. We're on that YouTube channel and, and share it with your loved ones or maybe people that you maybe don't necessarily love so much, but you just kind of like them. We don't discriminate. Share it to everybody. So today, taking a little bit of a different angle here, surprise, surprise, we talk a lot about like advice people give about relationships, but what we don't frequently do is talk about the experience of therapy. So this is season one of Heart of of Dixie. It's a a WB show that is about a doctor coming to a small town in Alabama to practice. And it's about all of the characters in this town. Well, two of the characters, we just find out that she had an affair and they are engaged and about to get married. So he wants to break up, but they are recommended to go see their counselor who also happens to be the person who is marrying them their minister Got it. so he gives some advice so i am going to play his advice 
And I want to see what you think as a couples therapist. Are you ready? I am. There are three segments. So here's segment one. And George is angry. He's furious and who can blame him? He just found out that I was having an affair. A what now? It was a year ago and it was a horrible mistake. And I know that the wedding is coming up in two weeks and that may not be enough time for George to forgive me, but I will do anything for another chance. Well, thank you for that, Lemon. I know that wasn't easy. George, what Lemon did was an enormous transgression, one that I can't expect you to take lightly, but clearly she still loves you. Now, is there any hope that in time you will be able to forgive her? This isn't about forgiveness, Reverend. This is about our relationship, and the foundation of our relationship is broken. And I don't know if I love her. He said, I don't know if I love her anymore. Initial thoughts. Um, my first thought was, is that Jason Street from Friday Night Lights? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. I love that show. Uh, <laughs> also, that, ac- that accent is really... Is really, it's the accent I use for therapy, actually. <laughs> I mean, my first concern is he does zero information gathering. It takes him three seconds, five seconds maximum, to decide that he understands the full picture and jump right into, here's how I judge what happened, and here's, here's where I really hope personally, because I'm personally motivated to promote marriage, Yeah. Mm-hmm. to jump in and guarantee your goal is to continue to move forward. Because, obviously, she's so sorry. She's so sorry. Okay. Woof. So, so maybe, maybe not, not the best uh, intro for, for a couple's therapist. No, no. Uh, now, you don't know. That's a key phrase. George, you're in pain. Pain, sometimes it can cloud the truth, which is why I cannot, in good conscience, let you end this without at least trying counseling. Now, just to find some clarity, please, just a few sessions. The music is so uplifting. (laughs) Yeah, that's not how we do informed consent either. We don't rely on, I mean, that's a conflict of interest. I'm personally motivated to promote marriage. Therefore, I cannot, I cannot allow, because I somehow have the ability to prevent you ending this relationship without obviously doing therapy. That's not important. You must do a couple of sessions. You must do them. You know, someone telling me that I'm like, oh, um, no. Okay. So that is the intro, how uh, the therapist set the stage. And so now there are going to be three kind of uh, interventions that the therapist Mm -hmm. does. Here we go. So glad that you both agreed to be here. It's a huge step. And uh, with the wedding right around the corner, we have to try to do a lot in a small amount of time. uh, You ready? Yes. Great. Let's begin. George, I appreciate what a kind heart you have. I appreciate how selflessly you give yourself to anyone who's in need. I appreciate your sweet green eyes. It's wonderful, Lemon. George, your turn. Lemon. I appreciate that you feel that way. 
So use the So that was intervention one. I think it was telling making them tell each other what they appreciate about each other. Thoughts? Sure. So the wedding has become one of these constraints now that we just yes. talked about the academic deep dive. They have decided they only have a few weeks because obviously the wedding date can't be moved because the wedding has taken on such an enormous, big focal point in their life. And that happens all the time with couples. Yes. Um, so problematic therapy because the couple therapist could certainly discuss with them how do we give you all more time to work on this relationship if you both are interested in doing that, which obviously one of them, again, is not consenting. Not at all interested in doing it. Segment number two. Use the pathways to express your emotions right now. Go ahead. She's caressing him with me. Reverend, I think there's got... I think that this is not possibly the, the best. Let it out. Let it out. There's just got to be a better one. Apparently, very mad at that thing. So he takes the 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 foam bat and starts trying to break it and then throws it away so that technique i know we've seen through there's so many like therapeutic things and it's about hitting each other expressing your feelings i've seen it in other tv shows i've never actually been taught that but i'm curious what you think yeah so just a reminder it's unethical to practice couples therapy without any training in couples therapy (laughs) and also when you're seeking a couples therapist important to look for their qualifications and their licensure to make sure that they're actually qualified to do the work that you're asking them to do Right. So you would say that that's maybe not an appropriate intervention? Sure. Yeah, no, quite dangerous, actually. Um, Really seems like it's promoting violence between the relationship. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, no one said this was going to be easy, but I'd like you to try one last thing before we give up. Anything. Anything. Come on. Anything. Now, I know you two are still signed up for the Bluebell battle. I'd love for you to go through. Oh, yes. Why on earth would we do that? It's a day of working together, communicating, seeing what you can accomplish as a team. And, well, as metaphors go, it's uh, it's pretty darn solid. I think no, it's a no, great no, idea. No, a, yes. no, oh, man, yes. Oh, no, yes. No, 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 no. I yes. don't want to have to play the big G card on you here, but I am your minister, and I know that he would want you to take one last shot before you throw away 15 years of, of history. Yeah, Irma, just out of curiosity, is one look. Thoughts? Sure. So also sometimes can be problematic when you have a dual relationship with your clinician. So he has not only an invested, uh, a vested interest in promoting marriage, but also promoting their marriage and using his former relationship with them as his minister to push that through. Again, not consensual, but also there are lots of, I think, lots of people who reach out to faith leaders for guidance in their marriage. And I am hopeful and and certain based on lots of good feedback we hear that that's not necessarily the coercive way in which 
those faith leaders usually right. try to help them heal. There's been, at least in these clips, there's no work on the actual infidelity or what happened in their relationship, just a desperate attempt to prevent them from ending it. Yeah. Which is really unhelpful. Uh, one thing that the minister does do that we know is, or attempts to do that we do know is based in science, is that um, mind expanding, active, doing activities together. We've done a, a academic deep dive on that mm-hmm. um, before where doing activities together, they don't necessarily have to be physical, but like problem solving, something that makes you think actually can improve the relationship. So he does touch on something there, but I think one important component of that is that both partners should consent um, to doing that activity together, I think, in order to reap the benefits of yes. those mind-expanding activities. And not necessarily evidence-based for healing the the wound of infidelity. <laughs> right, exactly. There is more actually, like a, right, more like a self-expanding kind of fun moment together, which is very different kind of research. Yeah, yeah. A, a, 100%. So, you know, if you are... A, interested in, in couples therapy and the, your therapist starts to dive in immediately, obviously side with one person right off the bat and encourage you to do some of these activities, maybe double check their licensure and... And interview a few. The first therapist is not always the fit therapist. It can take a while to find a good one, uh, which is certainly made harder by how hard it can be to find any therapist. But sticking with one that isn't a fit for you is really... Uh, can be a huge disservice to you and your relationship. Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, get at us on all those social medias about any relationship advice you've received and are wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.